0: Reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very much for joining me. Ah, get on in here. It's wonderful to see you. And it's great that you're coming in here to talk about gender diversity with me think of a better way for me to spend a little bit of time, uh, you, who knows? Maybe maybe there are better podcasts out there. What are you doing listening to me? This week, much like we do every time we come together, we hear from a public figure, in this case a member of parliament, and we take the confident declarations in which their questions are often posed, and we take them for the questions we hope they're intended to be, and we do our best to look to the scientific literature to see if we can't find an answer. This week's question comes then parliamentary debate. There were two petitions, one asking the UK government to change the definition of sex in the Equality Act to be based on sex uh, assigned at birth solely, which would sort of nullify the Gender Recognition Act and the gender recognition certificates that are currently available to the trans community, and another counter-petition asking the UK government to do nothing of the sort. And the UK government, parliament, uh, decided to uh, debate both of these petitions, and in that debate, we heard from a number of members of Parliament uh, on both sides of this uh, of this issue, um, and we heard from MP for Don Valley. Um, he's been an MP since 2019. That's Nick Fletcher. Uh, so here we go, Member of Parliament, the Right Honourable Nick Fletcher. Firstly, we are in a position where some biological males believe they have a right to enter single-sex spaces, female changing rooms. Now, I suspect that when many think of this, they think of a grown man, trans woman, entering a grown woman's space. This, to me, is obviously wrong. But my real concern is what happens when it's a six-year-old girl that's in that changing room. Somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's niece. It just isn't right. Thanks so much to MP Nick Fletcher for such a fascinating question. And posed, as they often are, in the form of a very confident declaration, slightly provocative. I personally am not the biggest fan of being referred to as an adult male. <laughs> but, you know, we'll put that to one side and we'll treat it as the question we know that it was intended to be. And that question is, are transgender women a danger to... Everyone else? Are we a risk to people, including are we a risk to cisgender women and are we a risk to children? And more than that, you might have noticed that it's not just about are transgender women a risk, although that does seem to be the question here. It's also about do inclusive policies increase the risk to cisgender women by allowing transgender folk access to the bathrooms and changing rooms, the spaces which can, you know, which uh, line up with their gender identity most appropriate to them given their gender identities, does that increase the risk that other people might manipulate that system in order to gain access to those spaces for nefarious purposes? Let's take a look at the literature. Before we get started, I do want to give you something of a content warning. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about sexual assault because, of course, this is, you know, centers around the question, right? The question of, Are transgender people a risk to people? Are transgender people's inclusion in particularly women's spaces increasing the risk to them? The risk is on violent crime and or sexual assault. So we need to talk about that literature. So what I did here is basically what I do every time we come together is to run a search of the literature. Um, Some of this stuff I know, but a lot of it I don't. Uh, These are niche fields and really you'd in order to be an expert in any one of these fields, you really want to be dedicating all of your time to them. Um, And this certainly isn't one of mine, but I took a look in detail at all of the literature I could find connecting the transgender community to, you know, uh, violent crime and sexual assault. And I, it's an awful field of literature. I really can't tell you. I'm gonna have to be quite cautious, even, you know, with that uh, sort of health warning early in the piece, you know, we're gonna have to be a bit cautious about what we talk about, because there's some I truly harrowing research in here. Um, the first thing that is really important to say is that uh, most of the research, a good chunk of the research, highlights that transgender folk are at increased risk of victimization, being the victim of sexual assault and of violent crime. Full disclosure, just to kind of get us situated, perhaps I have been the victim of violent crime. Um, I uh, when I was in the throes of transition, um, just outside my flat, I had people, uh, young people, they were adults, but young adults, uh, shouting at me, throwing things at me, um, swearing at me, and, uh, on one occasion, like, grabbing and threatening me and my partner, and, um, I gotta say, wasn't fun, y'all, it, it, I can see how this stuff can affect people in very profound ways, um, I had to get the police involved, and I, I remember vividly uh, us sitting in my living room, me just really scared that I was going to receive a police officer that might be, uh, you know, less than generous when it comes to my gender, um, and I remember having the conversation with him in my living room about, you know, what had happened and what was going on and, you know, what they could do to help. i got to say that I found the police to be enormously, abundantly generously sensitive. And I really appreciate what they did because they they said, listen, you know, we can we can take people, uh, you know, we can arrest people. Uh, he said, but that may not make it stop. He said, what we might do instead is to go and have a chat with them and um, go and talk to them, let them know that what they're doing is against the law and that they are at risk of being arrested and see if that can't make it stop. um just, you know, with a firm hand uh, guiding them rather than criminalizing their behavior, which is obviously criminal. And he said, if you wanted to, we could arrest them. Um, um, but I didn't, I said, okay, you know, have a chat with them and let's hope, uh, I gotta tell you, I was so affected by it. You know, every time I left the house, you know, I just had this kind of knot in my gut about, I might get, you know, attacked by these guys. It was wild. It was wild for a while. And, um, and it stopped it stopped pretty much immediately uh the the police doing their job outstandingly well um i've gotta say I understand thoroughly why the trans community are nervous in that in that circumstance, and you know as a white transgender woman, for sure, you know I know that I have that privilege behind me when I contact the police and not everybody is going to have that experience and not everybody is going to feel safe to contact the police at all. In fact, we're going to look to the literature and find that transgender people often don't and you know, their crime is underreported by the community for that reason, right? They're not sure they're going to be treated with respect or kindness. Um, and I'm thoroughly grateful that my experience was relatively positive, but I appreciate the privilege that informed that, you know, the, that led to that as unearned as it is. But as we look at the wider literature, we find that, for sure, lots of trans folk are at risk of violence in one way or another. Um, so we start with Pipes Meyer and colleagues uh, who did a big systematic review, 85 articles from 74 unique datasets, constituting nearly 50,000 transgender participants. This is one of the reasons systematic reviews are so awesome, right? What study is ever going to be able to get 50,000 transgender participants, right? It's only through a review of all the studies in a particular field that can answer a particular question that you can get that kind of participation, that kind of power in your research. And they found that for sure, uh, transgender folk had an increased risk of intimate partner violence. Uh, Looking at the lifetime prevalence of physical intimate partner violence at 37.5%, and apologies in advance sexual intimate partner violence at 25% the past year physical intimate partner violence rate was 16.7% and the past year sexual intimate partner violence rate was 10% among the transgender population this is obviously deeply disturbing uh, pieces of research i am sort of i don't know if i don't know about you i'm gobsmacked i, I find that rate to be disastrous and it, it clearly evidences a massive unmet need within the transgender and non-conforming population. And um, it doesn't stop there though. Uh you know, this is gonna get tough guys. It's gonna get tough, but we're in it together. I'll guide you through it and just know that when you feel a bit awful about this, uh, I do too. We're in it together. Um next up is Longendar Magruda and colleagues, 2016. Um they did a really interesting study. The reason I want to kind of highlight this one is because it looks at the distinction between uh, transgender populations, uh, who are obviously LGBTQIA+, they're the T at the very least in that acronym, uh, but they took a convenient sample of 1,124 LGBTQ adults and asked them about their experiences of sexual assault, and they found that the transgender folk in their sample were twice as likely as cisgender LGBTQ uh, individuals to report sexual assault, uh, in the study. Of course, you know, uh, already LGBTQ population as a whole is at an increased risk of experiencing sexual victimization. Um, and it's interesting that the transgender population are at particular risk within that group. Embrace yourselves, everyone, because we're going to talk a little bit about suicidality for a second. Uh, I don't know how we do this without talking about it because it, when we're doing the research and it comes up as important, I, I kind of want to report it to you. I don't want to kind of hide... Uh, the truth of this literature on you, um, but I appreciate that it is difficult to hear. Kogan and colleagues and Yoki and colleagues, uh, 2021 and 2020 respectively, um, both in the US, I think, uh, Kogan and colleagues uh, looking at the relationship between uh, experiences of traumatic events and suicide risk in 155 transgender folk and Joachim colleagues in the US looking at uh, 27,795 individuals uh, as part of the National Transgender Survey we've talked about before, and again wondering about uh, the experiences of, of suicidal ideation and the predictors of that. And both studies find that uh, thoughts about suicide, suicidal ideation, uh, increase considerably following physical or sexual assault. Um, Not surprising at all in many ways, but just very the impact of assault on this population is extremely severe. Um, We need to protect this population as best we can. Now, sadly, that victimization is also reflected in children and young people. Uh, Price and colleagues, uh, Toma and colleagues, Abradovic and colleagues, Coulter and colleagues, Xavier Hall and colleagues, Ray and colleagues, Grinner and colleagues, all finding that there's an increased risk that increased risk that we've already described essentially is reflected in an increased risk in childhood um sort of punctuating this research is Stirzing and colleagues uh, in 2019 looking at polyvictimization rates in sexual and gender minority adolescents in the US. They found, uh, they completed an online survey with 1,177 sexual and gender minority adolescents who were currently enrolled in middle or high school, which is I think 14 to 19 years of age. Um, They found that most of the sample experienced some form of lifetime physical assault at a rate of about 81.3%. Bullying in nearly 90% of the population, sexual victimization in 80%, child maltreatment at 79%, and the overall rate for polyvictimizations that's multiple forms of victimization at the same time was 41.3% which is dramatically high right that's horrendously high but that rate increases for people in more marginalized places on the kind of gender and sexuality spectra. So people who are questioning bisexual uh, or pansexual or queer, much increased rate or more in the 40s and 50%. Uh, but when it comes to the transgender population, people who are genderqueer, transgender women, uh, and transgender men are closer to 60%. Um with transgender women at 63% and queer folk at 65%. So, you know, the rate of polyvictimization for this population is offensively high uh, and clear. I mean, I just don't have words to describe this research. I, I can't find the words to describe it to you. Just uh, shocking, I think, is probably the word I would use. Absolutely shocking. Um... Of course, it won't be necessarily a surprise to you to learn that uh, folks at intersections of marginalisation, marginalised identities, um, experience worse outcomes, uh, a higher prevalence rate of of physical and sexual violence. Eastwood and colleagues in 2021 looking at young transgender women of colour, and Staples and Fuller in 2021 looking at... uh, Adult sexual assault severity among transgender folk of color, and finding that the rate of sexual assault is further increased for transgender women and men of color, and particularly for those who are more likely to be perceived as transgender. Now, some research I found quite interesting uh, is that this marginalization or this kind of this risk of assault is worse, obviously, in prison. Uh, Jenis and colleagues in 2019 looked at particularly sexual victimization. Uh, in prison, and they found 315 transgender women who were incarcerated in 27 California men's prisons. So they're incarcerated in men's prisons as transgender women. And they found that there were 198 reported incidents of sexual victimization uh, among those participants. And again, this is kind of also reflected in not even in prisons, in detention centers, uh, in immigration detention centers in the U.S., All right. So deep breath, everyone. This one is really bad. Uh, It's a great study, an amazing and important piece of work. But uh, gosh, the results are pretty tragic and and, uh, took me by surprise. And I know this literature now pretty well. Uh, Minero, Dominguez, Budge and Salcedo in 2022, they looked at Latinx uh, trans immigrants' survival of torture in US detention Uh, And their use of the word torture there is not uh, hyperbole. Uh, The descriptions from participants in this study were shocking to me. Um, They got 30 trans participants uh, who self-identified as Latinx and had experienced detention at some point in their life in the US. Now, participants were migrants uh, 18 to 52 and were born and migrated from El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, and Peru, between the ages of fourteen and thirty-nine, their description of uh, detention uh, has been is is awful. I cannot even describe it to you in detail here because it is simply too awful to share. But these are descriptions of torture, effectively um, being isolated, being placed in what they described as the ice box, which is a cold room with an you know where they don't turn the lights off, which is extremely cold. They have to sleep on the floor under, under you know these kind of what they described as aluminium blankets uh, with wet clothes. Just unbelievable. Um, it's well worth a read, but I encourage you to do so very carefully with a deep breath because some of the experiences of these young people. I mean, they were you know between the ages of fourteen and thirty nine. These young people when they came to the U.S. and were detained. Um, their experiences are, uh, without any hyperbole, harrowing in what was described by the authors and by these participants as torture. Now, we're getting into some more really interesting work here. Uh, I wanted to introduce you to another field, which is where transgender folk might be at risk in the criminal justice system, and that's in reporting their crimes. So, Uh, Miller and London, 2023. This year, mock jurors' perceptions of child sexual abuse cases. This is a fascinating piece of research. And what they did essentially was to create, they invented a case from real kind of descriptions to make it as real as possible, but it was an invented case. Uh, It was a case of sexual abuse between a a 15-year-old adolescents and a 34-year-old male teacher, uh, both not real. Uh, and the incident was, of course, made up. But the aim of these authors was to manipulate. They got participants to have a look at all of their case as if they were a juror in the case, look at all of the description and make a verdict, essentially. And that verdict then was the outcome measure from the research. They were looking at, they manipulated basically certain factors in the case, certain details, like the gender identity of the victim. And they took a look at, um, you know, what shaped, like they manipulated a bunch of stuff. So they manipulated the gender of the victim. They said the victim was either a boy or a girl. They manipulated the gender identity of the victim as either cisgender or transgender. And they manipulated the victim's sexual orientation, whether it was a straight or gay victim in this case. Now, They found that sexual orientation, interestingly in past research, sexual orientation does kind of shape people's perception of victims. But here they found no impact of sexual orientation. What they did find was there was a main effect of uh, gender identity, such that the perception of the transgender or cisgender uh, gender identity of the victim changed the verdict that people rendered. Now, what the study authors found was that there were interesting interaction effects. They found that for the transgender community who were gay, those folks were less likely to yield a guilty verdict. And this is what gets really interesting, is that transgender girls in particular, those who were assigned male at birth, who identified as girls, were much less likely to yield a guilty verdict than any other group. And they were deemed to be less credible victims. Bearing in mind that these guys didn't manipulate anything about the description, they just manipulated that one thing, right? The the nature of the victim as transgender. And that one piece of information was enough to decrease the credibility of the victim and to be less likely to make jurors, in this case, you know, these participant jurors return a guilty verdict. Absolutely fascinating. There was another study by Carter and colleagues uh, from the year before, and their work is actually really interesting. They used a very much more descriptive, uh, they basically gave people full trial transcripts rather than just a, a case vignette. Um, and that was supposed to kind of create more uh, what we call ecological validity, like uh, make it representative much more of real world decision making, right? That's much closer to what jurors would actually experience than these sort of shorter vignettes. Now, they didn't find the same kind of strength of effect. And they put that down to the idea that maybe this was a you know a more realistic scenario. But I tend to think that it might be as simple as the fact that they only got undergraduate students to take a look at it. So this other study that we just described uh, from Miller and London... Uh, they used a community sample, whereas, uh, unfortunately, these guys, uh, Carter and Goodman, as Ratledge Dukes in 2022, uh, not finding the strength of effect here. But I think when you use 223 undergraduate students from a liberal arts college, you're likely to find quite a, uh, a you know, an inclusive sample. Uh, folks are going to be more liberal. Folks are going to be more inclusive. They're going to have less prejudice towards the transgender community. So while they didn't find the same effect... Um, I wonder if it's might be because of the sample. Other research in the field, like Sharif Pause from 2018, uh, bringing together 186 participants, uh, from age of 18 to 70. So a proper community sample. And again, they did find that, uh, victim blaming and severity of the crime were influenced by the description of the target as transgender, uh, such that People thought that the crime was less severe and that the victim was more to blame when the victim was uh, described as transgender. And that effect was most substantial for men in the sample. It was much weaker for women, um, interestingly. And to punctuate this point, uh, Bogoslavsky in 2022 found that one of the big predictors of uh, victim blaming when it comes to transgender victims is uh, participant heteronormativity, That is the sort of privileging of heterosexual and, uh, I think in this case, cisgender experiences as normal and healthy uh, and those that are not, as not. Now, it won't be any surprise to you, of course, that given these kind of perceptions of transgender folk, uh, it's not surprising that transgender folk are less likely to report crime than their cisgender counterparts. Walker and colleagues in 2021 looked at 436 individual rape cases uh, from existing data held by project partners uh, from the Crown Prosecution Service and others uh, from police services from 2010. So 436 individual rape cases and 149 further from 2014 added to their pool. And they took a look at the characteristics of people who were reporting rape And they found that not one was transgender. Indeed, only one was recorded as non-white, so we find that predominantly young, white, cisgender women were reporting rape, and even those were underreported, it seems, uh, from Walker's work, from their conclusions. But given that, as we've already described, the transgender population is at an increased risk of experiencing sexual assault, it's pretty remarkable that of the cases that they could find, not one identified as transgender. Now, in 2020, Lagendra Magruder and colleagues were looking at stalking victimization and found that while the transgender and LGBTQ population more broadly is at an increased risk of experiencing stalking, they are at a decreased chance of reporting it. Now, in the wider population from Bauman colleagues, uh, they found that 37% of men, that's about 892,000, and 41% of women that's two and a half million victims uh, had their stalking case reported either by themselves or someone else to the police. Now, in this research by Legenda for Magruber and colleagues, they found that the reporting rate for the broader LGBTQ population was closer to 25%, which is much lower. And they had 117 participants in their sample who were transgender, 22 of whom had experienced stalking, uh, which was higher than the rest of their sample. That's 18% compared to about 15% of the rest of their sample. Um, and of those participants who experienced stalking, only two reported it to police. Woo, all right, so let's, let's take a beat and just work out where we are. So as I was looking through the literature, the first thing I noticed is that when we're talking about violent crime and sexual assault, transgender women uh, and transgender men, and in fact, the whole broad LGBTQIA plus community, but the transgender community particularly are at increased risk of violent crime and sexual assault in all kinds of different ways. We find that that directly translates into children and young people who are at increased risk of abuse of all kinds and it translates into people who are at marginalized intersections. So those at marginalized intersections, transgender folk who are homeless, transgender folk of color, uh, transgender folk who are disabled uh, are at increased risk of experiencing uh, violent crime and sexual assault. And trans folk in prisons are at increased risk and and trans folk who report their crimes to police. So it seems that transgender folk are very much less likely to report crimes of all kinds to the police, especially when it comes to violent crime, sexual assault, including stalking. Um, And when they do report it to the police, it seems that there is a certain level of bias towards them as victims. They tend to be at increased risk of being blamed, uh, even by kind of independent jurors, uh, and increased uh, risk of their crimes against them being seen as less severe, I think. Um, So on the whole, we find that there's just you know, sources of marginalisation at every turn for this community. Now, I do realise that this episode is going to contribute to this perception of the trans community as victims. Um, I, I don't really want to do that, but I do want to report the the research as I see it, uh, as accurately as I can to you. And trans folk are professionals in the world. They have families and uh, and careers and do amazing things. And sadly, they are also the victims of crime disproportionately, particularly violent crime and sexual crime. And perceptions of those crimes are influenced by heteronormativity, and they are less likely to report those crimes to police. But so far, we haven't really been able to answer Nick Fletcher's question. Nick Fletcher's question really is about, you know, does uh, are transgender people a risk to other people? And does including transgender women in particular in women's spaces put women at risk in some way, not only from transgender women, but also from the wider community? Now, there was one study I found that was, I I see it used a lot. I see it come up all over the place, kind of highlighting the possibility, uh, basically because the authors say this, they say that uh, transgender women essentially uh, have higher rates of violent crime than female controls. And therefore, uh, they have a male pattern, in inverted commas, of criminality. Like, direct quotation, this indicates that they've retained a male pattern regarding criminality, end quote. Now, of course, that is a bit of a problem. This is Denier, Lichtenstein, uh, Bowman, Johansson, uh, Lundström and Landen, uh, in 2011, long-term follow-up of transsexual persons undergoing sex reassignment surgery. They basically took a look at everyone they could find that had applied for and received, uh, sex reassignment in Sweden. And they found 324 people, uh, between the, uh, between the years of 1973 and 2003. So it's the all the data is a little bit old. Um, and they took a look at, uh, both sort of non-violent and violent crimes committed by that community, right, of transgender folk. And they looked at getting a group of age-matched controls, 10 times as many. So they had 191 uh, transgender women and 133 transgender men and 1,900 control women and 1,300 control men. And they compared them directly. And what's interesting is they basically found that In their large group of controls, 3,240 control participants, they found 61 examples of or cases of violent crime, 61 events of violent crime. Now, given that they had 10 times as many, they would expect about six incidents of violent crime in the transgender population, and they found 14 incidents of violent crime. Now, it's very small numbers, right? There's not that many transgender people and violent crime is mercifully very rare, Um, but it's a very small number. And when we're looking at the transgender women in the sample, there were only eight in 30 years, only eight uh, cases of violent crime. Now, of course, you don't really know whether how many people were committing the violent crime, right? So there's only eight events. And it could be that there weren't it, you know, it could be that one person was committing multiple events. It's very difficult to know over a 30 year period. And, um, and it's also that the controls are only matched by age. They're not matched by anything else. And, um, and, you know, lots of features of the transgender population that mean that they don't really represent the wider population. There are increased risk of violent crime for a start of all kinds. Uh, there are increased risk of abuse, and there are, uh, I mean, there's loads of different things that make them not very representative of the wider population. They're twice as likely to serve in the military, for example. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about the transgender population, you just match for age, you're probably not a direct representation. And when we're talking about only eight examples over 30 years of violent crime, I'm not sure that's enough of a sample to be able to draw the conclusion that transgender women in inverted commas maintain a male pattern regarding violent crime. Uh, I find that conclusion is a little bit of a generous interpretation of this literature. Um, And this was the only study that I could find that was making that case. Uh, None of the other literature that I read uh, gave the indication that transgender women were an any kind of increased risk of committing crime uh, than their cisgender counterparts. But maybe nonetheless, Nick Fletcher's point can still stand in the more broad sense that maybe including transgender folk in uh, female spaces does increase the risk uh, of, of violent crime in those spaces, not by transgender women, but by the broader community. By being more inclusive, we increase the risk that men will enter those spaces like pretending to be women or purporting to be women in order to gain access to those spaces to commit crime. Helpfully, there is kind of a cool naturalistic study that we can draw from. Hassenbusch, Flores and Herman in 2019, gender identity non-discrimination laws in public accommodation. Now, these guys really interestingly took a look at Minnesota as a kind of real life test case. Now, uh, gender Identity Inclusive Public Accommodations Non-Discrimination Ordinances. Whew, that's the uh, tongue twister. No wonder they shortened it to jipandos. Uh So jipandos are essentially these kind of uh, public accommodations. Essentially, in Minnesota, uh, they have had all kinds of non-discrimination laws uh, for the transgender community, but they didn't include public accommodations such as changing and restrooms. But some localities within Minnesota decided to change this and included these new protections known as jipandos. So what could happen is that these study authors, Hasenbush and colleagues, were able to take a look at the sort of the incidences of violent crime in those uh, in those places, both before and after these jipandos were put in place, like before and after the protections for transgender people's access to Essentially, women's spaces like changing rooms and restrooms were put in place. And they're able to compare the localities that did have Japandos to those that didn't. Really interesting. So that's quite a strong study, right? Quite big. They're able to look at all of the sort of reported uh, crimes going on, criminal incidents uh, related to assault, sex crimes and voyeurism in these public restrooms, locker rooms and dressing rooms. Uh, and they're able to compare both before and after trans inclusive policies and compare those that did and those that didn't have them uh, in the same you know in the same state uh, in the same place in in minnesota and while the localities might be different uh, you you can take a look at the change over time so this is really interesting and essentially what they find is that it didn't change so uh, the passage of such laws they say in direct quote Uh, is not related to the number or frequency of criminal incidents in these spaces, either pre and post. So after creating these laws, those localities didn't experience uh, a rise in the number or frequency of criminal incidents in those spaces. uh, And those that did didn't differ to those that didn't when you're comparing localities. So I think this is the strongest evidence we can find that uh, you know, introducing such laws, uh, trans-inclusive laws that allow transgender women in particular access to women's spaces like changing rooms, like locker rooms, like toilets, doesn't increase the risk of uh, crime taking place in those spaces. Now, in fact, what I find really interesting is this risk, this risk, really very cool, very large study from Murchison, uh, Agenor, Reisner, Watson uh, in 2019, uh, it's called School, Restroom and Locker Room Restrictions and Sexual Assault Risk Among Transgender Youth. It's published in Pediatrics, big journal. Uh, they had just shy of 30,000 participants in their broad survey, but they limited the actual sample to 3,673 participants who were in the grades uh, seven through 12. That's 12 to 17 years of age and who reported a an either transgender or non-binary identity. So, you know, we know each other pretty well. Now, you know the literature pretty well if you've been following along Uh, over the many weeks we've been doing this. uh, Three and a half thousand transgender participants is pretty big in this field because there's not many of them generally. Now, what they found was that these are U.S. adolescents, by the way, and they find that the 12-month prevalence of sexual assault was 25% which is huge uh, way higher than the 15% rate among cisgender high school girls which is still tragically high and 4% among cisgender boys now here's where things get really interesting they compared youth experiencing non-restricted access to those single sex spaces and those youth who experienced restricted access to those single-sex spaces, who had restricted access to restrooms, locker rooms. So, for example, trans girls who weren't having, who didn't have easy access to the locker and restrooms, you know, toilets of the uh, you know, women's toilets, essentially, to girls' toilets. They found that restroom and locker room restrictions in school were associated with a greater risk of sexual assault, times the risk of sexual assault for trans boys, 1.4 times the risk of sexual assault for non-binary youth assigned female at birth, and two and a half times the risk of sexual assault for transgender girls, which is absolutely fascinating. So now there's a couple of possible uh, explanations here. They did find that sexual harassment fully mediated the association between the restrictions and sexual assault risk. So they say that actually what might well be happening here is that sexual harassment can escalate to sexual assault. And by introducing restrictions, you put gender minorities in a difficult situation. Your transgender girls have to use the boys' toilets or have to use the boys' changing rooms. And those girls are therefore at increased risk of sexual harassment from the boys around them. And that can escalate to sexual assault quite easily. The other possibility here is that you know, uh, places that have restroom or locker room restrictions are going to be more like exclusive of the transgender community. So it's possible that, you know, less inclusive environments more broadly increase the risk of sexual harassment, which can escalate to sexual assault. Also, another possibility is that the, the sort of restroom and locker room restrictions And the policing of those also puts students at risk of being outed as transgender, which itself increases their risk of sexual harassment and then sexual assault. So, you know, what we find here is that implementing these kind of restrictions actually might put transgender people at increased risk of sexual harassment and ultimately of sexual assault. And finally, Weinhart and Stevens uh, and colleagues, they basically found that From 127 youth between the ages of 13 and 20, they found that the experience of feeling unsafe in bathrooms due to your appearance or your gender identity is associated with lower resilience and lower quality of life compared to those who felt safe. So you find here that LGBT youth feeling unsafe in bathrooms because of their gender identity you know, it has a deleterious effect on their quality of life and their well-being, their resilience. So I hope we have come to something of an answer to Nick Fletcher's question here. Nick Fletcher, a brilliant uh, question posed, you know, do transgender people make people unsafe? Are transgender people themselves, these grown men, as Nick Fletcher described them, transgender women, are they a risk to the women around them? And does their inclusion in female spaces increase the risk of those spaces for cisgender women, uh, even if it's not from the transgender community itself? And what we find here is that I don't think that's the case at all. This big Minnesota study highlights that introducing protections for transgender women to use female spaces does not increase the risk of crime, violent crime in those spaces, or voyeurism or sexual crime in those spaces. And in fact, it reduces their risk to the transgender community, right? It reduces the risk of uh, sexual harassment, reduces the risk of sexual assault, improves their well-being, makes them more resilient, uh, improves their quality of life because you're producing like protections for transgender people to access the spaces with which they identify the ones that are right for them. That's right. That feels like home. That's what I am, right? And in fact, as we look at this literature, we find the very opposite, that this is a community that needs those protections because transgender people are at massively increased risk of violent crime and sexual assault, both children and young people in school and adults. And There are increased risk of unconscious bias in criminal proceedings, and they're unlikely to report crime at the same rate as the cisgender population. So transgender folk need our protection as best that we can provide it. We need inclusive spaces, and ultimately, we need to provide a world where everyone, everyone can find a place to belong. Thanks so very much for joining me. This is Classroom Psychology. You are very welcome here. And I look forward to seeing you as always in the next one.